0: And actions, as they say in my hometown. Uh, good morning, world. Good afternoon, world, if you are on the East Coast, as Dr. Michael Daly is. Uh, this is Jonathan Fite, uh, and I am uh, CEO of Beyond Lucid Technologies, and I am thrilled and humbled, I will say, to be able to have a conversation today about topics that are extraordinary and urgent, uh, emerging and essential. uh, And with a team of speakers, of experts joining us that are gonna make my life really easy because I don't need to say much. Uh, So uh, we're gonna step in here in a second and and do a round of introductions. But I wanna remark that uh, just this week, I I had the, the pleasure of convening the second annual Mobile Medical Innovation Roundtable, uh, where Abby knocked everyone's socks off. Uh, the fact that she is was able to travel to and from and be here uh, is certainly a pleasure and an honor for me. Um, we'll maybe we'll tell some stories. Maybe we'll save those for after the recording has stopped. Uh, but uh, it really was an extraordinary opportunity to bring together folks who are so committed to the the role that mobile medicine uh, not only plays but can play when we look forward to uh, its role at the corner of healthcare and public health and public safety Uh, and one of the most urgent aspects of that discussion as we look palliative care end-of-life discussions um, the fact that every so often people, in fact, friends of ours, uh, some of, of those listening will know Dr. Greg Mears, uh, who was the founder of the National EMS Information System and a wonderful emergency physician in his own right, um, who actually emerged from hospice uh, af- after having uh, some significant health issues. and We're all thrilled that he is uh, getting better and that we're going to have, we're going to be able to pick his brain and tap his expertise for many, many years. Um, but, but medicine is an unbelievable thing to those of us who have the opportunity to observe it. And some of you get to be uh, sort of play in that space. Uh, so we, we had a chance to talk about where this, where this profession, uh, and I think that's a, a word we're going to talk, come back to but this profession can go. Uh, and in order to do that, there are some big questions that come up. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. The topic, uh, here is is ethics, education, and EMS. Uh, and I co-opted uh, Dr. Michael Daly's phrase here of, of using the moral compass. Uh, in light of some conversations I've certainly had with Dr. Abby Dotson on many occasions, we'll talk about your respective backgrounds. And it was all inspired by Dr. Chris Colwell, um, who said something at a uh, EMS administra- California EMS administrators conference, the MSEC conference this past year that blew my mind. Uh, which, uh, it, it, and I will say it blew my mind because on the one hand, it seems so obvious, uh, which is this idea that we need to trust the people who go to the patient and we need to empower them. We need to, we need to believe that they're the eyes uh, and hands and awareness that are on the ground. And, and that was something so wonderfully foreign uh, <laughs> that it sort of sparked this conversation. Um, so, uh, with that said, let me start by, I'm going to go kind of clockwise from as you appear on my screen. So that's going to be uh, Chris, and then Abby, uh, and then Michael. Uh, and ha- have you all introduce yourselves. Just before I do that, let me thank Jeff Frankel and the Journal of EMS team, uh, as always, for hosting Uh, what I hope are thought-provoking conversations, necessary conversations for a profession that is looking to evolve itself, uh, emerge into all that, again, all that it can be. Uh, And so we have to have some thorny conversations. We have to talk about uh, big topics, not just what are we going to call ourselves and, uh, you know, how much reimbursement or compensation folks are going to get. We have to talk about uh, the intellectual topics, the uh, the emotional topics, the psychologically effective, within A topics, uh, and and I hope we're gonna. I know we're gonna get into that today. So, uh, Dr. Chris Caldwell, start start with you, and we'll go around the table here.
1: Hi, good morning. I'll say good morning because uh, it is still morning here in San Francisco. Uh, my name is Chris Caldwell. I'm the uh, chief of emergency medicine at San Francisco General Hospital and a vice chair at UCSF. Uh, but more related to this conversation um, over. We oversee the the medical direction and base hospital um, uh, involvement for all of EMS within San Francisco, including San Francisco Fire, uh, AMR, San Francisco, and uh, and King Ambulance, which are the primary providers of uh, of EMS within the city and county of San Francisco. Um, And I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. I, I can't think of something that is more pertinent Uh, to what we do every day, and I don't go a shift in the emergency department without dealing with it there in the emergency department, but also, uh, you know, over the biophone and in direct contact with our EMS providers Uh, here in San Francisco, we have a service called EMS6 that is very involved in some of these issues, and uh, a day doesn't come up when uh, this isn't an important issue, so I'm really glad we're getting the chance to uh, to do this, and uh, I'm also a little bit humbled by my fellow panelists who are uh, all true experts uh, and uh, and visionaries in this area. So I'm excited to learn from them as well.
0: Wonderful, I, I have so many things. So we're gonna pause on some of those and move around the table here and we'll have a lot to come back to Abby, you're next.
2: Yeah, oh, hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm Abby Dotson. I am in Portland, Oregon. I am a research assistant professor of emergency medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. Um, I also am the director for the Oregon Pulse Registry, so we uh, supply the digital health technology that connects EMS with a patient's um, pulse medical orders. And then um, I am also the Na- the executive director for the National Pulse Collaborative, and on that side, I really help advise other states who are looking to start their pulse programs. And we develop best practices and education and policies and technology recommendations. For where pulse should be going um, nationwide,
0: tell them your PhD.
2: I Come on. <laughs> so Jonathan likes to do this because it's. Um, I I have had a very interesting career trajectory. Um, I did not start off in this space. I started off um, in immunology, and I was a neuroimmunologist before I transitioned to emergency medicine. <laughs> And I promise there's a connection. I worked in digital health and, and uh, healthcare commercialization for a while, but yeah, I, I kind of was a basic scientist for a little bit.
0: Okay. Just, just for the record, it's not the basic science part that blows my mind. It's the idea that a PhD or a neuro is really hard. A PhD in immunology is really hard. And when you square them, you get you, right? So I, I kind of see this as like, you know, you, you certainly didn't take the path of least resistance. Um, and it just blows my mind. And 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 side notes, maybe for another conversation. But the number of times I've wanted to dig into what it was like to be a neuroimmunologist during the era of COVID nineteen, um, I mean that's a whole topic. I think in and of itself, but to you know, th- there's a lot. There's a lot of discussions that happen in 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 hallways, right, about what was real and what was not in the science versus the politics, and we'll leave those aside for today, but to be someone who understands at a molecular level these things uh, is just, to have been a fly on the wall of your brain would have been fascinating to me.
2: I think it sounds a lot more impressive than it was. I just really um, took the brains out of mice for 10 years type thing.
0: I was saying, I, I I spent a stint working in a VA lab uh in the sleep science space and uh, felt I felt a lot of empathy for those those critters. I don't think they knew what quite what they were getting into when they were born. Uh, so we know. had
2: really great oversight, great IU cook boards. It was all done very ethically.
0: So they just didn't get a lot of say in the matter. Is all I'm saying. Apropos pulse <laughs> It was you know it was thank you for living. Uh, there was that was pretty much how that went. Uh, we'll come we'll come back to that in a much more humane way in a few minutes. All right, Doctor Michael Daly.
3: So I'm uh, I'm Michael Daly, uh, chief of um, pre-hospital care at Albany Med in New York. Um, so I'm going to tell everybody um, good afternoon. Um, and I'm having a technology issue here. There we go. No, I'm still having a technology issue. Um, I
0: see
3: you just fine. There you go. As long as you can see me just fine, you guys all disappeared here. for a minute. Um, and uh, I point out that Chris and I both went to trade school, and it sounds like Abby did a real doctorate. So you know that's that's very impressive. Um, and I can't think of a better idea than someone ending up on a national pulsed um, program um, after facing COVID nineteen as a neuroimmunologist. So uh, that makes a ton of sense to me.
0: See, it wasn't just my admiration there's a relevance to this we're going to come back to it all right um so again i i having having had some background on each of your perspectives on these matters I, i'm going to sort of point to each of you and want you to what sort of level set for for how we come to this conversation because uh, as we as we go through it i want to steer us back towards the conversation actually uh michael as you just mentioned sort of the appropriateness of this, once you once you connect a couple threads in what mobile medical professionals do every day, I find it fascinating. I mean, I love talking to all of you. I love having conversations like this. I find when people talk about EMS as a young discipline, and I use EMS in, in its broadest phraseology here, by the way. Um, I'll, I'll interchange with that in mobile medicine. Michael, we did lose you now. Uh, are you still there? Now you went dark.
3: Be back in a minute.
0: Okay, uh, but I, I use it. I use it to encompass uh, fire-based EMA, uh, uh, emergency medical services, critical care, non-emergency medical transport, uh, 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 community paramedicine, sort of the the and, and certainly private public the, the gamut. Uh, so there is so much talk about the fact that mobile medicine per se is a young discipline in the fifty-year range or so. I don't understand. In my heart, how this conversation is not 50 years old. Right? I mean, it is so core to everything that gets done and those the fundamental decisions that have to get made. Uh, so uh, I wanna start, Abby. If it well, yeah, I want to start with Abby and then Michael, I want to turn to you because I wanna I wanna zoom in a little bit on this co- concept of the moral compass that you and I talked about. I know you have a very personal, if you're comfortable talking about it, connection to this topic. Uh, that I think sets us on a path to talk about education and the should the normative conversation. Uh, but Abby, just you mentioned Pulse a couple times, uh, and of course I, I heard you just uh, two days ago give a really extraordinary overview, referencing Amelia Briery's work as well uh, on on Pulse around the country. Can you give us a couple minutes of primer? on going where we are, what is Pulse? You and I, by the way, you and I have talked about that. You are actually my first podcast guest. Uh, for sacred cows and data cues some moons ago. Um, But give us a level set on where Pulse is, what it is, kind of what the trajectory of this concept looks like, uh, so that we have a sense of why this is such an urgent ethical discussion.
2: Yeah, so Pulse was developed actually here in Oregon um, at the OHSU Center for Ethics and Healthcare in the early 90s, about 1991. And it came out from the idea that um, we needed a way to communicate a patient's medical treatment wishes when they're undergoing, you know, serious illness treatment, or we're talking about end-of-life care, and communicate that to emergency medical services, to, you know, clinicians in the ED or clinicians who are out in the field. And we had to have a way to communicate what those um, patients, treatment preferences were and also, you know, have legislation around it so that, um, you know, the the community uh, paramedicine team or the emergency room clinicians had some legal protection to withhold treatment that a patient didn't actually want. And so that was the the idea of Pulse, um, you know, coming out of Oregon in the early '90s. Technology followed after that, and then we started to be able to connect the dots of EMS in the field with, um, you know, a database that we housed here in Oregon, which is why I, I started out working with the Oregon Pulse Registry because access is key, and we need to connect those dots. But um, I think one of the really impactful things that I learned as I started this journey, I do not have a background in in EMS or emergency medicine. My background was in data and I I knew data and that's what I knew how to do. And then I had to learn everything else. And so, you know, at our, at the conference that Jonathan was just mentioning, our mobile medical innovation conference, Dr. Um, Megan McElleran, I hope I didn't butcher her last name, but she um, works in Calgary in Canada and they're doing all this work on you know, emergency medical mental health and how to make that better. And we know that um, decision fatigue, moral fatigue is a real thing for our first responders. We know that PTSD rates are higher. We know that suicide rates are higher. And this is one small tool, Pulse, in itself, a portable medical order is one small tool to give them more information to make decisions in the field. And it gives them a the peace of mind of being able to know that they're acting the way the patient wanted, and they're giving concordant care. So I'll stop there and, and see if anyone else wants to add in or if you have any follow- up.
0: yeah, I think we'll we'll add to that. I, I want to look uh, uh, chris and then and then Michael to you because Abby, I think just again, she does an extraordinary job sort of level setting where the country is from a clinical technical perspective. Um, but you guys interface with the public. On on a daily, many times a day, base, and I think it's it's interesting because obviously besides you're in different states now, right? Both very busy, very complex legal environments to work in California and New York. And Chris, starting with you, you've also been in other states, right? As well, Colorado, I believe. Um, so which which has home rules and a whole other different political environment. So starting with you, Chris, and then going to you, Michael. Can you again level set for anyone who may watch this? Realizing some are clinicians, some may not be. Some may be interested family members, advocates. We're going to share this with the compassionate care community. Level set what today's status quo is, because I will. I will just say by way of five seconds on this. When I first met Abby, our very first conversation. I my my mission in, in my organization is to connect ambulances to hospitals and their their ecosystem, and. I remember when we first had a conversation about pulse I said, what, "What am I? How does this have anything to do with me?" Right? These are these were palliative care form, and her. I mean, it's it's one of those those sort of life rocking moments I'll never forget. She said, "But EMS can't get them, right? Or EMS don't have access to them in in the moment if you're in the Whole Foods, right?" And so. So explain a little bit about what you experience when folks have gone through the process of codifying their wishes. What does that look like in reality as a patient? And what burdens does that put on families? Sort of unpack this concept for us because the form kind of kind of goes by the wayside if you don't know what we're talking about. But and, and in different contexts, right? Here versus Colorado, for example, how those are different, we'll go to New York for.
1: Yeah, you asked the question, what is status quo? And I would say status quo is chaos and confusion. Um, and uh, part of it has been self-induced, right? As, as we have introduced so many different aspects to this, there are many layers of this concept. And, and I think one of the first things that we have to accept, and this gets back to the comment that I made um, that, that just got your attention, um, because I keep coming back to that, is that, you know, post is... Um, It is a wonderful advancement. And as you know, we've had things like advanced directives for quite some time. um, We have different words to describe different levels of this as well. But as you already pointed out, different states have different rules, different in some cases, even different counties within a state have different approaches and different rules to this. And keeping track of all of that can be difficult. I've been here in San Francisco now for almost eight years, and I'm still learning some things about some of these aspects to it. And so this is a complicated, difficult process that brings in medical, ethical, ethical, moral, and and so many different aspects to it, that in my mind, the more we try to, we we, we have to try to bring information forward so that people can make informed decisions. But we also have to recognize that each individual situation is going to have some aspects to it that can't be previous, uh, be conscribed um, ahead of time and so in my mind what we need to do is, is take advantage of the efforts that Abby and Michael and, and many others are making now to get to inform our particular EMS but also our emergency providers um, in the hospital as well of, of what's out there and what and and how they should how they can approach this and, and know when they're handed a pollster an advanced directive or a written you know just a note that was written a week ago and um and they've got family members there in the scene and and there's so many different aspects to it. We've got to do everything we can to inform and educate those of us that are that are facing this and then empower them to make decisions based on what they're what they have in front of them. And I think the more that we do things like this, where we're we're trying to navigate some of the difficult decisions and then recognize that that one in front of you tomorrow, later today, uh, later this week is gonna have some different aspects to it. You're gonna need to be able to to adjust to that situation. And so I love that we're doing all of this. I think it's critically important, but we also need to recognize that nothing we do is gonna be able to make an objective decision for every single situation we face. And these are so complicated. Uh, Let's embrace that we have this information and recognize that we're gonna have to make a decision in front of us, which can be tough. So let's talk about it now so that it's a little bit easier.
0: Well, and that's why I'm, I'm going to want us to come back to couching that in the education discussion, uh, because I think there, again, there's a, there's a professional education, there's a public education. I'm not sure they're the same, uh, but but I think being able to give, bring bring big thinkers together and identify the gaps uh, is a pretty strong start on that, because I am finding, uh, you mentioned certainly uh, Abby and Michael, one person that comes to my mind all the time is Peter Antevy uh, in Florida. Uh, who does a remarkable job of talking about the canary yellow form and has given whole webinars about the inability to get these necessarily timely or identify which one is correct and which one is, you know, make sure you get the chronology right. And I find it fascinating to think that, again, at the level of you folks, certainly not me, I'm the peon asking the questions, but to the degree that if, if we're at the level that we're thinking about this at your levels, we want to identify those gaps because if those gaps persist, clearly there's something we can, we we can or should be doing to translate that into action. Uh, and I think that maybe if that, if that becomes a takeaway of this conversation, then I certainly will feel like I've done my duty. Um, so Michael, tell, give us a little bit of the perspective on the East coast. Um, I think let me preface thing. New York fascinates me for a lot of reasons. Besides the fact I left my heart swinging somewhere on a pole in midtown uh, Manhattan, but the, um, uh, but you are really a tale of two states, right? I mean, you've got the state of New York City and the state of everything else. Uh, and I think that's, you know, when I see some amazing research, certainly in the Albany area, work being done in a very collaborative fashion from, from an outsider's perspective, agencies that actually like one another as opposed to uh, some other parts of the country. But then you've got folks like in Rochester uh, and in Buffalo who are doing really strong advocacy for connecting the dots. You've got a statewide health information network, uh, the SHINY, uh, that has these uh, different pockets of health information organizations around the state. California is playing catch-up uh, in that regard, uh, trying to sort of replicate what the SHINY is. It's an interesting, uh, very... Powerful initiative right now, I think. Uh, but sort of, you've got a lot of context, I think, that in California uh, we are still trying to do. You know, so, so tell us what how this how this touches your world and kind of what you're seeing out there, and then we'll we'll go into your personal discussion if you're comfortable
3: weaving that in. So, I think I think it's interesting, Jonathan. As you talk, we are indeed a a state of two states. Um, Downstate, upstate are are obviously very different. Um, although we tend to work together reasonably well, um, I think in terms of actual relevance to patient care, the SHINY has done a um, has done an extremely good job in terms of um, making and um, creating the impression that we have a, a a good information exchange across the entire state. Um, each of the independent regional health information organizations has different strengths. Um, Sadly, the EMS integration into that is its weakest link, um, made weaker by EMS agencies making independent decisions in terms of which technology they're going to deploy for record keeping, um, which is extremely uh, challenging. Um, I think that one of the projects that we had moving in New York before COVID Um, was e-molst because we have molst instead of pulsed, but it's the same thing. Um, But we have to call it something different, right? Because we're New York and ours is in yellow like Peter's, ours is pink because it needs to be, again, different. And then when we bring it into a hospital, we have to remind the hospital that actually it belongs to the patient and not to the hospital. Um, There are certainly a significant amount of challenges. And I think the thing that I really um, would love to see with with all of these is the conversion to technology like Abby's creating, um, where it's all electronic. So all of a sudden the chronology of multiple pink forms with the occasional yellow one when they travel to Florida or brilliant green when they travel to Connecticut, um, all of that goes away so we can access what that conversation is. Uh, Because at the point of the spear, when you're taking care of that patient, you need to know, am I pushing on the chest? Am I applying electricity? Am I intubating the patient? Uh, But then after those decisions are made, I need to know more about what the thought process was behind the discussion. And if that's attached, then I actually have an advanced directive as well as medical orders And that makes a lot better uh, patient, that ultimately creates much better patient care. Where we really start getting into trouble is when people say, well, a MOLST is not an advanced directive, a MOLST is in order, and then they take their heels in, and this pedantic argument ends up sacrificing um, the the good intent of what, what we had there. So we have to be very careful as we move forward with any of this stuff. So, so speak
0: to that for me a little bit. Talk, talk to me about the pedantism. Um, and again, I, I think there's there's three threads that I want to want to pluck here. One, one is t- tell me more about the heel digging. And then Abby, if you could do do us the favor of helping to explain if there's a difference between pulse, pulsed, most, post, most, you know, pulsed. T-POP, I think was the one you had mentioned, is in Kansas, right? <laughs> so, you know, are, is there a difference? Is this just a matter of federalism kind of gone awry? And I want to bring this back after those two to you, Chris, here in California, uh, because I want to talk about Assembly Bill 133, which establishes the legal framework in California, not just for interoperability, but uh, with EMS, but establishes or tucked into it, um, the legal basis for a statewide pulsed framework. Um, and, I, and I'm going to bring in a case example, just to cue it up from Cedar Sinai uh, down in Southern California, where I saw firsthand what can happen, both with my personal, with my family, but also in talking to them, what happens when the expectations are misaligned. Uh, and so that's kind of where I want to I want to go here, because I think the the pedantism, Michael, is, is such an interesting place to start, kind of what whether the barriers are real. Um, the the word that keeps coming in my mind again, I'm just going to cue this up so that you get thinking about it is hospice, right? And and misunderstandings about the differences between EMS, hospice, pulse versus advanced directives, sort of these things that are you know as as engineers we hate separate but similar. Um, it, but but that's kind of seems to be a lot of what we're talking about is are we splitting hairs or are there real reasons for these conversations? Um, to result in people saying, I-, I need to go down a path. So Michael, tell me more about the pedantism Then, Abby, I'm gonna ask you to sort of t- tell us whether that's real uh, and go from there.
3: I think there's two different things. One is a journey, the other is the destination. Um, and if we look at the pedantism of, is it an advanced directive, is it a MOLST? What is the most appropriate to use for that patient or should it have been um, something else? Um, then we miss the, the destination. And the destination is, what does that person really want at the time we are providing care for them? Um, and that's without getting anywhere near what is the medically appropriate thing, right? That's that's gonna be something different. Um, that is is also a long conversation. Um, but it, But at the end of the day, if we focus on the destination, walk our way backwards as we're taking care of any patient, then we ultimately will be doing the best thing for that individual.
0: So, and then but before I transition again, sort of digging into the technical details, do you mind telling the world a little bit about your personal experience with EMS and health and end of life and things like that? And some of that moral compass conversation, that's comfortable to you? Um.
3: So it's a bit,
0: yeah, that's a bit close, well, but I, I think it couches well, that.
3: No, it's less that it's less that it's close, but it's another that um, this what I've what we're doing so far is a series of rabbit holes. Right. And we're actually heading in a completely different area right now um, that I think is going to walk us away from from what what Abby has. The, the long story short is um, my father had a cardiac arrest um, when he had his cardiac arrest. Uh, he was a stubborn old coot of 90 years who owed the world nothing and the world owed him nothing. Uh, he was a great guy. But he never had any interest in uh, being a DNR. And um, when we called 911, or my mother called 911, I got to listen to this uh, over the phone, which was awful. Um, The police officer showed up, did an excellent job of CPR, excellent job of early defibrillation, and the ambulance never showed up. And the ambulance still never showed up. And then finally, Um, Not quite a half an hour later, a neighboring ambulance showed up um, with uh, some ALS support because, unfortunately, and this is where the moral compass comes in, um, the ambulance agency itself um, didn't have the ability to do its job, and the community believed there's an ambulance in a garage here on Main Street, therefore, we are protected, Um, and the agency said, well, we're here and we're volunteering. Therefore, everything is good in our community, but nobody really checked to see whether or not the job that was needed could be performed. And because of uh, home rule within that county um, and 60 something different public safety answering points within that county um, and multiple independent agencies, um, there is no single solution. Um, and the individuals living in that County remain in that
0: situation today. So, so let me just say, first of all, I, I personally feel extremely sorry for what you went through. Um, And I, I will, I promise you, I will stitch the rabbit holes together. Um, To me, the, the, this all comes down to the real. Um, And this is sort of my crusade these days Um, being with San Francisco as a backdrop. I'm, I'm about 30 minutes outside of San Francisco, but there are a lot. My, my wife actually is working in Oakland today. Um, there is, I think is why I wanna to transition to Abby, sort of unpacking the the slices, is that it all it's all theory until it's not, right? Until you pick up the phone and someone's expected to come and do something. And then it becomes a question of, can they? Do they know how to? Have we educated? Can they make the decision? It, when, when Chris blew up my brain at this MSAC discussion, and saying, we need to trust people. Can't trust somebody to do something they don't know how to do. Um, and so, or that they don't have the wherewithal to do it. They don't know they need to do. And I think there is a, uh, again, I, we, Chris and I operate in the backdrop and Abby mentioned technology and data as well, but we, we live in the pulsing heart of technology for the world. And yet there is presently no health information exchange in San Francisco. Um, so we, we need to understand where the where the 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 books and the websites and the theory sort of the rocks of reality and starts to crash. and and to me, michael, your your discussion of, like you say, it's sitting in the garage, therefore we assume certain things. That's as real as it gets, tragically sometimes. Sometimes it ends up working out for the positive. sometimes it doesn't. And so to me, that's where all the rabbit holes converge because the truth is, I think so many of these conversations stop in the rabbit hole um you know someone used the analogy at our roundtable about the first barrier you encounter you stop and you basically say that there you know there's something in the road rather than go around it go through it or you know take a chainsaw and chop that tree down you just say i'm going home uh, and something you know something real happens on the other end because it, it that the juice was worth the squeeze to get through it um and i i don't know that we have that conversation enough but that's the ethics and that's the education and i so i, I know there's a lot of winding roads to get there, but as we get towards the, the end of our conversation today, I'm going to stitch those together uh, and ask you how we do that. And, and so I wanted to sort of lay the, the, the foundation. In the fact, these are not simple. These are very complicated topics uh, to the point you that you mentioned. But at the end of the day, it's far more important, at least in my view, than the acronym. It's the end result. And and so as you mentioned, the the, the destination, not the journey, but we need to understand what the roads look like to know what roadblocks are going to be there and be prepared to get there. I don't think as a discipline we are yet. Um, so thank you for sharing the story again. I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, um, but but nevertheless, again, this is maybe, you know, if it's not it's not in vain, if your, your experience and your family's experience helps to lay a normative foundation for what we should be teaching people uh, and, and why we need to get these conversations to the depth where they belong. Abby, tell us what's real, what's not. Why is this not? Why do the colors matter? Uh, Why do we need to have the different names? Is this just something we're going to get over? um, But it sort of came up in pieces, or is there a real distinction uh, reflective of differing healthcare needs in in the communities? Why green, pink, blue, yellow, et cetera?
2: I, I think that um, there are probably 16 different names across the nation of, of you know, how we call these portable medical orders. On the national side, we say Pulsed, uh, and we, we're no longer using that as an acronym. That is just Pulse because that is the recognized word, but it's a portable metal, medical order set. Um, originally, the name was Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And then we moved away from that because it's not just a physician conversation. PAs, nurse practitioners can also have these conversations with patients. And then um, life-sustaining treatment didn't seem like a neutral term, and we really want this to be a neutral form. And so we're just calling it portable medical orders. Across the nation, there is, like you said, TPOP. Let me me pause
0: you for a second. When when you say neutral term, can you describe what you mean by that? Uh, Yeah, that seems to me like a term of art. Uh, It it seems to me that this is very much a perspective on a piece of paper. So what do you mean by neutral?
2: Well, when you hear hear the term life-sustaining treatment, what does that mean to you? What do you think? Keep you alive. Yes. And this form, you know, we know when EMS comes to your door or you go into the ED, the standard of care is to keep you alive. And so this document is a choice on, you know, how do I want, how much treatment do I want? Do I want to be resuscitated or not? And so life-sustaining treatment didn't, it seemed like it was a document to promote, you know, aggressive measures. And it's, it's, it's just a choice document on how you want to convey what you want. Um, and so across the nation with, you know, every state has developed their own um, kind of take on this. We do have a National Pulse form It is a model for states to to develop their Pulse form and how they want that to be reflected for their state. We just see so many differences from state to state on what's important. I mean, Michael, we'll talk about New York for a second. I'll be remiss if I didn't mention the amazing Dr. Pat Bomba, who made the the most form, um, you know, a quite a comprehensive order set. And that's what New York wanted. And in Oregon, we took artificial nutrition off of our Pulse form. Because we didn't think that it was a an emergent event. And then B, you know, there, there is some data there around how um, effective is you know artificial nutrition, especially in in um, patients with uh, mental capacity issues. And then on the national level, we still see that that is important, and so we want those conversations to be had. So there are different, different opinions. There's also different legislation around what each state can do on the federal level it'd be great if we could have this one size fits all solution but we just we we made a, a bit of a movement with that and it just there's so many differences on the communities and what's important to the communities from state to state that that's just not going to happen right this very second and then but when you get down to it when you get down to as i'm going to you know talk about the data elements it's really they all the forms are still very similar Maybe with the exception of New York, so you guys have a few more choices. But in general, the data elements are demographics. There's a CPR DNR section. There's a medical order section, and then there could be some add-on for you know artificial nutrition. I think Washington still has um, antibiotics and IV fluids on their form. Um, in general, though, the data is still very interoperable, and we can have a we have a, a minimum data set that we've developed. Um, it's an HL7 CDA minimum data set that we developed with um, the ONC, and that's really pretty interoperable across states.
0: Awesome. I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned the education bit. So so Chris, let me let me turn to you first. Excuse me, the the HL7 bit. Because I think it goes to education. So first of all for, for anyone who's unfamiliar ONC stands for the Office of the National Coordinator of Health IT uh, that is a federal office inside the, the Department of US Department of Health and Human Services that essentially sets policy for uh, uh, interoperability and standards around health uh, electronic health records and health information exchange. So Chris I I promise I would I would sort of bring it back here. I think uh, California is interesting in well remember everybody we do nothing wrong in this state don't ever question what we do in california um so the uh it is the the education bit is fascinating when it comes to even things like electronic health records and i i kind of want to look to against our sorry mike let's come back to that let's let's unpack that comment in just Mm -hmm. a second if we would Um, so so, Chris, I, I promise I would again sort of use a local case study, and I'd like to get your thought on again how we engage the public, uh, and and the public can be clinicians, right? Those are members of a public, right? They they exist. I think it's an interesting thing at speaking to clinicians, by the way, that we like to talk about clinicians as if they don't have families and, and they don't experience trauma and they don't experience all the things that right. And, and and so you are members of a public as well. So when I think about Southern California, um, I had a couple uh, run-ins with this this ecosystem. My father-in-law passed uh, a couple years ago of cancer. Um, he lived in Los Angeles. Uh, he was uh, in, involved in, in in a Medicaid plan. So there were a lot of questions around what he could have versus should have received in terms of care. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave the plan nameless. But nevertheless, nevertheless, there was the question of whether he was being routed to the right path. Um, for example, hospice versus something else. Uh, you know, was he sort of being shuttled out of the healthcare system because you know of, of socioeconomic questions? Around the same time, I had a fascinating conversation with some folks focused on health IT and innovation at Cedar Sinai Medical Center. Uh, clearly, one of the best known and best reputed for very good reason healthcare systems in the world. I think we can. Uh, I, I would not a lot of folks would disagree that Cedar Sinai has earned its reputation. Uh, but they they made a an interesting statement when I asked about pulsed interoperability with EMS, and and so tying it back to the HL7 comment that Abby made, I think this is again where it hits the road. And, and Mike, to your point about rabbit holes, the the rabbit holes start to converge or something. Because uh, I don't want you to think these are random. I really want to understand how these lines converge in this extraordinarily well. Uh, appointed hospital system, right? Very well reputed, very connected um, with a lot of resources, right? Cedar sign is not a poor facility. Um, they talked about housing their patients' post forms in their EPIC electronic health record system. That's an HL7-based system. It ties in with these ONC standards for interoperability. And I expressed that being the, I think they're a level one trauma center, that strikes me as right, um that but they if not level one level two but clearly they deal with all kinds of things cardiac and surgery and all the things i should have looked that one up for the call but they are they they have an emergency department they do very high level work um and they said they house their patients records the the pulse and the ehr and i said but you receive ambulances from all over the county right and all over southern california what if somebody was a patient somewhere else and was transported here for the appropriate level of care and you don't have their wishes represented in your because they've never seen them before you would if they were there right but you've never seen them they're a new patient they're a visitor to hollywood who got hit by a car while crossing hollywood boulevard against a light because they thought it was new york city and they could just cross the street right And, and so now you have now you're faced with the idea that you have a patient who's effectively unknown and there's an expectation, I think, among the public that when 911 shows up and 911 transports and someone rubs a, a lamp and the blue genie pops out sings a song and all the things are known. But how do we educate on the reality of all the pieces that need to come into contact and align there when at the massive hospital system with all of its cool technology, They had a misunderstanding around what they had access to and didn't. I mean, how wide is this gulf when we are not even talking about the patient's family yet and understanding the difference between an advanced directive, a uh, uh, pulsed, a living will, uh, hospice care versus more aggressive and what options they have. And yet we have fully expert clinicians who seem to not understand how these forms work and what they have access to and not. what do the layers look like in your mind? What's the starting point for closing all those many gaps when, as Abby mentioned, there are already standards that exist, for example, at the federal level uh, and a lot of work being done in places to do this? Long question, sorry.
1: Yeah, long question with many, many layers also. I guess I would I would answer that question by saying that we, we we've got to stop depending on the medical system to come up with these answers uh, in, in, in what I would describe as a vacuum. I mean, we, we stumble over ourselves all the time. Even some of us who spend an enormous amount of time just on this topic still have a lot to learn about some of the nuances of this. So expecting any health system to be able to, to get their act together enough to really uh, put this together, I think is too much. And so it gets back to, I think, an earlier comment that you described is we need to be talking about this on the community level. We need to be talking about this with our EMS providers as they interact with the community in in a lot of other situations. Has anybody ever considered asking, you know, what are your wishes when they come in with an ankle sprain? Now, granted, that's an extreme situation. um, But if if that question just triggers the next discussion with their physician, the next Um, the the next thought process, is: are there other options out there? And I think, you know, Michael said something earlier that is so critical. This is all pieces of information that come in to make a decision. And there are many aspects to that decision. What a patient wants is so important and understanding what a patient wants is so important. And we also have to make medically appropriate decisions. So, whereas a patient might want everything done, Their understanding of what everything done means, I I have a conversation almost daily with, you realize that when you talk about everything done and the different machines and ventilators and those type of things is, is nothing but pain for your family member. And there's, you know, there's, you can see the realization in their faces. Well, I didn't realize that. Um, And and those discussions we're not having with people to the extent that we can. I love working at San Francisco General because it gives me an example of almost everything on a daily basis. And two nights ago, we had this. We had uh, an elderly woman come in. And one of the first things she had fallen, she was on anticoagulation. She had hit her head. She was clearly suffering from a head injury. She had a number of medical problems. She did have they handed me um, a form as they came in, EMS did, uh, stating what her wishes were clearly not appropriate, You know, not necessarily designated to this particular situation. But in comes her daughter, who's a power of attorney, who signed the form. And when she saw the form that EMS handed me, said, looked at it like it was the first time she was seeing it. And by the way, they didn't speak English, and it was all written in English. Um, and so all these different aspects of it, uh, she, she clearly, once we got an interpreter in there, had not understood what she was signing. And and so these are just one, one example of how many different ways the system can be confusing for people. So one of the things we have to do, have these discussions, talk about, edu- educate all of us on uh, things like post and different versions of that. What does that mean? What does advanced directive mean? What does DNR mean? Uh, Michael brought that up in the chat. Um, and, and have a better understanding ourselves of what to do. And then also say, each situation is going to require us to, uh, empowered to make decisions with a lot of nuances here and recognize that we won't be able to write a protocol that says this is how you handle this situation because they're two different. So let's understand these different aspects. Let's have access to this information and let's know not only their benefits, but their limitations. And I'll say it again, as I'll say, I'll finish every, every comment I make with, let's empower our EMS providers and, and emergency certainly in the emergency department as well, to make decisions based on all of this information coming together in the situation they have in front of them as to what is most appropriate for that patient based on their wishes and based on what that situation is bringing to bear.
0: And I'm so glad you, you mentioned the health equity bit. I was actually going to steer us, make sure we addressed that as well. The, the language part is very real, right? Um, So Gosh, I mean, again, the, the way that you describe all of those connections is 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 both so aspirational and on, on some level feels like something we should have started talking about yesterday. Uh, uh, let, let me clarify, when I mentioned a particular healthcare facility, it was certainly not to pick on them, by the way. It's it, rather the opposite, is to note that if an organization with all of these resources having this challenge, imagine what the critical access facility you know, in the middle of the countryside is having they're, they're struggling with that just as much without all the necessary necessarily the expertise in house to be able to make those connections understand those realities so there this is a real issue and uh, I was glad you know Abby and I have had many many a conversation around this article from the New York Times to bring it back into Michael's hood uh, called filing suit for wrongful life. Um, and I think the, the this sort of rocked the pulsed world uh, a couple of years ago when it was talking about or during COVID and in and, and general, the idea of, of patients finding themselves uh, being treated before they could express their wishes. Um, so when when you talk, Chris, and I want to look to, to, to Michael, if I would, again, uh, there's no specific order to this. Feel free to chime in as you do. And Abby, that goes for you as well, please. Um when when we look to the conversation about how to educate, what I hear you saying, Michael, uh, and again, I experienced this firsthand with my uh, my father-in-law, who was a Mexican man uh, suffering from cancer. Uh, he, in, in, I mean, he certainly spoke English, but English was not his first language. I think what he had is no knowledge of medicine in any shape or form. Um, so to the degree that if someone said, what do you want to do? What would you like to have? He would not have known his options, um, let alone how to understand what those options are. I think the, you know, we all know that that it's, it's a. There's so many PSAs out there about don't clam up when you talk to your doctor, right? I mean, the the power dynamic between the patient and the physician is is one of I, I defer to you. What should I do? And they don't necessarily know all the options. Um, so you raise these educational threads. In the idea of educating clinicians in the field, in the facility, in uh, in the hospital, in the doctor's office, uh, Michael, how would you take that? You know, you you oversee a very wide range of care providers. Uh, some are urban-ish, compared to like New York City and San Francisco. Um, but Albany is urban, or as urban as the upstate gets. Um, and then you've got some some agencies that are extremely rural. I, I've been to some of those uh, where there's, you know, one station and it's in a bar, uh, quite literally. So how, how would you approach that education conversation? How would you approach, is it a town hall with the community, uh, to Chris's point about engaging that community level? Is it a directive that you as medical director engage these teams? Is it... Do you have to go through the state? Kind of what are your what are your steps if you were going to bring this conversation home and do these educational you know, teach people about ethics, which is not a simple conversation. Right? Sometimes it's it's the it's the better of the of the worst solutions. Right? Uh, which of the bad do we choose? <laughs> um, how would you begin that conversation with folks who have probably never had it with you, where it's dialogical? They're reading a form. They're going going stepwise. And now they need to make some really deep decisions. What's your starting point? Well,
3: well, hopefully the decisions aren't the ones that are being made at the time when EMS is taking care of the patient, right? Um, And I think I'll step back to a time that we did it really, really poorly. Um, And I stepped away before because this is actually posted on the wall outside my office. Um, But it's a headline from the New York Post. And some of you may remember this and we'll see whether or not here, let me turn off blur for a second.
0: That'd be great. I was just gonna ask that or read us what's on there. Thank you.
3: Yeah, no, the, re- the reading is less, uh, um, is less important than the uh, being able to see it, right? So this is a beautiful example from the New York Post of a terrible job of education. During COVID, we came up with what actually was a medically appropriate, very concise protocol that allowed um, people to not get resuscitated if the chance of their being resuscitated um, was dismal. And as a result, we were looking to protect providers. um, And remember at the beginning of COVID, it was extremely scary, right? We had no idea how you got this disease, yet we had EMS providers You know, struggling for resuscitations, doing long carry downs while trying to do CPR, where the outcome was going to be dismal. Um, We did an absolutely terrible job of releasing this protocol with education that didn't um, provide enough support for people then to be able to act on it, which ultimately led to a New York Post title um, or a headline. You know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of different ways to approach any of these educational initiatives. And I think the right answer is that you just have to start. We're going back and forth between technology and how we share people's wishes with how you ultimately do something with this at the time of patient care. And both are important because we're looking at a national healthcare infrastructure where 60 to 70% of the hospital records are on two platforms, right? They're on Cerner and Epic, yet neither one automatically includes an EMOLST registry as part of their initial build for all of the facilities that contract with them. And at the other end of it, there is no ability to access that data for all of these various EMS data systems that people are gonna use. And if you think about the the engineering of an EMS call, most documentation of an EMS call is done post-hoc. It's not done at the time of the call. And a retrospective documentation system that happens to draw data in from other sources isn't gonna help you when you're faced with somebody in cardiac arrest. So there have to be two different approaches to getting that information, one designed for the hospital environment, one ultimately designed for easy accessibility in a mobile medical world. Um, and we really have to make sure that we are going to um, give people the support that they need um, at the time when they're providing that care. Be it calling Chris, calling me, calling our partners. We're ready to co- to help people, guide people through that experience um, as necessary.
0: Thank you for that. And, and clearly we're pointing, well, all, all eyes and arrows are pointing at Abby on this. But I, I wanna add one additional piece into this conversation if we could, as we get towards the top of the hour. And and by no means that I think we were gonna cover everything in this section session, but hopefully we've laid a lot of groundwork to either have a part two or have many parts with different groups as we talk about it. But Abby, there's a lot obviously that Michael mentioned there in terms of interoperability among systems. Um, you all and many folks watching will <laughs> know that my my uh, crusade these days, uh, as I talk about the real, is about interoperability of people and processes as well. It's not just technical systems. Um, but sure, Mike, I'll try to get through this real quick and then I think I'll defer to Abby. But I know some of you will have a chance to meet, you'll have a chance to meet one another and hear from Abby at the National Association of EMS Physicians coming up. Abby, talk to me about how, in addition to the technical interoperability, We need to collapse the silos among the groups, because it strikes me that you've got physician groups and patient advocacy groups and EMS groups, and this cross cuts all of those. And yet, this is a new conversation as well. If you could add that human element in here, I'd I'd love to hear how you as a national uh, leader are approaching all those, those pieces too. Thank you.
2: Yeah, and I'm going to make this super quick because we have only a few minutes left, but I want to address one thing that Michael said, and I think you're spot on. There's no one size fits all solution. And What I talked about at the Mobile Medical um, Integration Conference this week and when we type out at the National Association of EMS Physicians in January in Austin is that even amongst the EMS organizations and agencies, there's still no one size fits all solution. If you are a very rural agency, you're not going to always have the connectivity and to to be able to like get say information from a standalone web portal or what we see in Oregon is just that there needs to be multiple levels of access of that information for EMS so that it works for that agency. There are a lot of places in Oregon that, you know, it's one person who is a volunteer who's, you know, you know, isn't going to have a lot of resources available to them. So, so that's, that's definitely a conversation in terms of the education. Again, there's no one size fits all. We need to talk to the families on that level. We need to train the trainers. Essentially, we need to train, you know, the, the physicians to know how to have these conversations with patients, but then also how to act on them and how to take all the information. I think Chris is so spot on. You take all the information in your scenario. And it's not just black and white. There's a lot to consider. And you, have, you have a decision-making process that you have to do. And then, you know, on the technology side, we need to also have everyone come together and what's going to be the best way to get this information to the people who need it. So I'm going to stop because I know we're almost done.
0: No, these are good. Uh, Chris, do you want to weigh in on that?
2: Yeah, because
1: we know that these situations, we, we really can't have meaningful conversations on these types of issues in the heat of the moment, right? I mean, there's just too many emotions involved, too many things going on. So that's why these discussions have to happen beforehand. And and bringing this all together, we, we're saying we need to get this education out. We need to get education out and, and focus on EMS providers in the community at large to really be able to understand these issues because yeah, in the heat of the moment, it will not happen and and can often deteriorate quickly when we don't have um, either, we have partial information or don't have enough information. So that's why these, these kinds of events are so important and how now our challenge is to get this out even more so into really a community awareness.
2: Absolutely, and the education on the palliative care, primary care hospice side is totally different than the education for the EMS side. That's a great point.
0: Indeed. So, so let me say, as, as we close out here, and I want to respect everybody's time, my objective with this conversation, and for anyone watching or taking notes, watch it again later and bullet it out, is, ju- is essentially to create an outline for that education. I hope we've touched on a lot of it. Um, this is a conversation that needs to happen before the moment. That's sort of the summary takeaway from everybody here but it is not a local issue either and i think that's one reason why i was so thrilled to have you all represented this is cross country it's the it's the spaces in between uh it's the rural it's the urban so to the degree that we have create we can create a framework for taking what each of you has mentioned and the parts that we didn't but sort of touched on in between and chris comes back to your point about being able to trust folks to make that decision if we, can, if we can give educators a bulleted list and say, these are the topics you're gonna need to talk about. And now let's give them the resources and research to be able to say, here's what you can educate on and give that outline at the beginning or the end of class, et cetera, and say here for more information, contact these people. And so uh, I wanna thank you all for your time. Thank everybody for, for attending on what is uh, hopefully uh, seen universally as a critical and overdue topic. Uh, but it is the first of many conversations, as uh, Abby, you mentioned, these different disciplines that are still separated in, in practice, uh, in education, but in reality, they come very much together. Uh, and this is an effort to try to converge those lines and collapse the silos and take the rabbit holes and have them all meet in one place. Uh, so thank you all for uh, joining us. Uh, thank the three of you for your extraordinary work. Uh, and leadership uh we I I'm in awe of all that you do as are all of your patients uh but but let it resonate from this conversation to to all those who will say if we haven't thought about these big issues let's start to do that thank you guys very much and stay safe